Well, good evening. I hope that you are well. Was oh, that me? Am I doing that? No. Um, forgot my belt. Just want to keep my jacket buttoned. Just want to be real with you tonight as we get started. I know that many of you have practiced uh, family worship in your lives. Some of you, some of you, even growing up, have have practiced it with your parents, and um, some of you have many years of experience. And some of you are are just learning about this for the first time. I'm curious. I want to start with a question tonight. I want to hear from you. What what is you? What have you found to be the hardest part of family worship? What's the hardest part of that practice for you in your own experience? Yes, sir. Consistency. Consistency. Yeah. It's yeah. a big one. Yes, sir. Getting a family. Getting a family. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Someone else? Yeah. Making sure that I'm not talking over them. Yeah. Making sure that we're not talking over them. That's a, that's a big struggle with littles. Yes, sir? Family activities. Family activities. You talking about getting in the way of that? Yeah, yeah busyness, the calendar being extra full. Absolutely. Yes, ma'am? Um, sometimes turning it into like disciplinary, like we're trying, because we're trying to help like Levi read and then I end up like correcting things mm-hmm. or even Maya too. And yeah. Try not to make it a correction study. Yeah. Family worship can easily turn into a time of lots and lots of discipline and correction. Very good. Someone else? Yeah. The singing. The singing, yeah. The singing. Yeah, we um, thank goodness for helps that can help with that. But yeah, singing has been one that's come up a lot as I've talked to you individually after the after our sessions. And some of you have texted me about that. What about singing? Um, everyone can sing. Everyone can sing. Maybe not well, but you can sing. Anybody else? Sitting down and singing. Sitting down and singing? Is that difficult? Yeah, I don't know why. Stand up? Stand up? That's easily fixed. Yeah, very good. Well, tonight is our last night. I I appreciate the opportunity to, to, to do this. It is a theme subject that's close to my heart. Um, I'm no expert. I struggle. I have these same struggles that you mentioned uh, regularly. Um, So I don't want to give the impression that I've got this nailed down. Um, I might have a bit more practice than you. And the Lord has, for for whatever reason, seen fit to uh, push me into a role where I am talking about family worship a lot. Um, And I'm thankful for it because it has been a tremendous joy in my own life. What's going to matter five seconds into eternity? What's going to matter then? Think about that. And as that becomes clear to you, do those things now. And I can assure you that the time that you spend with your family worshiping the one true and living God 
will be something that you never regret. There's a scene in The Silver Chair uh, by C.S. Lewis that, that I really like. It, it, it moves me every time I come to it. Uh, the protagonist in the story, Jill and Eustace. I love Eustace. He's my favorite. Um, they're about to embark on a quest in a strange land. And, and Aslan is, is going to, 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 to help them. He speaks to them and he gives them signs by which they can find their way because they've never been in this land before. And I want you to hear what he says to them. After he gives them the signs, he says this. First, remember, remember, remember the signs. Say them to yourself when you wake in the morning and when you lie down at night and when you wake in the middle of the night. And whatever strange things may happen to you, let nothing turn your mind from following these signs. And secondly, I give you a warning. Here on the mountain, I have spoken to you clearly. I will not often do so down in the valley. Here on the mountain, the air is clear and your mind is clear. As you drop down into the valley, the air will thicken. Take great care that it does not confuse your mind And the signs which you have learned here will not look at all as you expect them to look when you meet them there. That is why it is so important to know them by heart and pay no attention to appearances. Remember the signs and believe the signs. Nothing else matters. What a mercy it is that God has given Christians signs, as it were to guide, to comfort, to correct, to strengthen us. The scriptures are God's word to his people and his word guards us against the corruption of the flesh, the malice of Satan and the lies of the world. You need this, brothers and sisters, but, but so does your little flock. So do those under your roof. As the shepherd of your household, you have the great privilege and responsibility to gather your flock together and show them again and again God's signs, the scriptures. This isn't redundant. It's not excess because your wife and your children will be the target of Satan's fiery darts, the world's lies and their own heart's condemnations this very day. We often speak of when we think of our children of of, Uh, sending them from the nest years from now when they're grown and preparing them for that. And that's that's a good and noble aspiration, but, but this view is really too limited. When I gather my wife and children to minister the word to them through reading and praying and singing the scriptures, it's so that they will have strength to go to battle today. We do family worship at 8 a.m. because The war against their souls starts at 9 a.m. When I teach my wife and children from the scriptures, it's not as if I'm simply making deposits into their spiritual account that one day they can withdraw from and draw strength. Rather, I'm suiting them up for the battle that is raging just over the hill. It's their daily bread. Now, I can't think of anything more in agreement with the word of God than, than a man who governs a household giving priority to tenderly gathering them together each day to read, pray, and sing the scriptures. Is it possible to 
argue that fathers leading their families to the throne of the one true God in prayer and singing and reading the scriptures isn't God's will for families? Hardly. The argument that there is no direct positive command in scripture for it is is a feeble defense and it, it quickly crumbles under the avalanche of evidence to the contrary. Have you ever had the experience of of learning that a person that you looked up to in the faith, maybe they enjoyed success in the public public eye and uh, many people emulated them and wanted to be around them. And then you learned that they were neglecting their family. Maybe that came out through some sort of failure or something of that nature. The apparent success and and good that they did for the general public causes us to admire them and, and maybe even emulate them. They may be loved by many, but it turns out there was a strange inconsistency that, that now casts doubt on their character. The reason that that inconsistency is, is, causes us uneasiness is because we know even instinctively that the nature of spiritual leadership requires that one be above reproach in every area of their life, especially in regards to their family. In 2 Samuel 6, Israel celebrated the return of the ark to Jerusalem. It was a time of worship unto the Lord and receiving blessing from him. Verses 17 and 18 say this, David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Now, this is fitting. David led the nation to worship the Lord. It was a time of celebration, and then he blessed the people. Now, now here's the part that's of interest to us. Samuel recorded a bit of information in verse 20, that David, after he blessed the people in the name of the Lord, quote, returned to bless his own household. Now, things didn't go as planned when he got there, but, but that's not the point. The point here is that David was concerned about the spiritual well-being of his family. His, his attention was turned toward his own household. He made plans to go and care for their souls, and so should we. Let's look at another example in the New Testament. In Acts 10, Luke records the story of Cornelius, a Gentile, a devout man who feared God along with his whole household. As Peter approached Caesarea, the text says Cornelius was expecting them. And he had called together his relatives and close friends. Once Peter arrived, Cornelius said to him, Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Peter preached the gospel to them and they were converted. So what are we to make of this and other household conversions? Now, clearly, these passages, they're, they're descriptive. They're not prescriptive. This isn't a formula that we can follow, but, but there is a principle that we should pay close attention to here, and it's this. God is pleased to convert entire households through the obedience and faithfulness of the head of that household. Furthermore, it's not a strain on this principle to, to, to assert that God will use that same means for the sanctification and preservation of them. This reminds me of something astounding that happened to me back in 2010. We were serving as missionaries in Memphis. 
working among Latino people groups there in the, in the city. I went to a house, never been there before, and I knocked on the door with the hopes of starting a Bible study. That's what I did day after day, hour after hour. And as I knocked, no one was there. It appeared to be no one there. No one came to the door. So I went to leave and I was crossing the yard. And as I crossed the yard, there was, I noticed a man sitting in his truck. And he came out and he cut me off as I was trying to make my way to my vehicle. Now, this was strange. That's not typically the way that Latinos behaved towards me in Memphis. But he cut me off and, and he said, what do you want? And I said, well, I'm, I teach the Bible. I'm here to see if I can pray for you and share the scriptures with you. He said, wait right there. He turned and went to his truck and he stuck his hand under the front seat of his truck. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to Memphis, but at this point I was wondering, do I run in a straight line or do I zigzag towards my vehicle? I didn't have time to do either because by the time I got my thoughts together, he was walking towards me and I saw that in his hand was a Bible. He said, I was just talking to my mother in Mexico and I was reading a psalm to her because she's going through a hard time. I said, that's, that's great. Are you a Christian? He said, yes, we followed Christ last year, but we need someone to teach us. I said, I can do that. And then he just stared at me and I said, you mean right now? He said, yes. Followed him into his house and he brought me into his living room and he got an old office chair and he set it right in the middle of the living room and he told me to sit down. I met this man five minutes ago. He left the room and I heard some commotion and noise and one by one people started to enter into the living room and sit on the couches that were around the room. Now I hadn't met these people yet. So imagine their surprise and mine when they walked into the living room and saw me sitting there in the chair not sure why I was there. After about 12 folks came in, the man, whose name was Jose, came in as well. And he stood beside me and he put, it, he put his hand on my shoulder and he said to his family, this man has come to teach us the word of God and we're going to listen. It was 2010. That church is still meeting today. The Lord is pleased to draw people to himself and sanctify and preserve people when the head of the household leads them toward him. Both David and Cornelius demonstrated a fitting consistency. Their public devotion reflected their dealings with their family. Their personal devotion to and fear of God matched their relationship and posture toward their household. May it be so with us as well. But let's face it, sometimes you don't feel like going to the effort of family worship. If you're just getting started, if this is something new to you, you, might, you may not have faced this challenge just yet. So I want to prepare you for the inevitable obstacle of discouragement. And I want to encourage you toward faithfulness despite feelings. At the onset of practicing family worship, it's exciting and new. The kids are interested in it. You and your spouse are on the same page about it. Family worship starts out as a bright adventure. But eventually, the shine will dull and the adventure will turn into, at times, an arduous trek. 
And it's at this crossroads, this critical crossroads, that you will have to make a decision. What will you do when the kids are in terrible moods? Or your wife isn't really up for it because she has a lot to do around the house. And if you were honest with yourself, you know you'd really rather sit back and enjoy a game on television. What decision will you make when you come to that crossroads? The decision that you make at this point is critical. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not advocating for a legalistic approach. But consistency and discipline aren't legalistic when the gospel is the foundation. And a genuine care for the souls around you is your motivation. In those moments of decision, don't trust your feelings. Let me say that again. In those moments of decision, don't trust your feelings. They will steer you wrong. Even when it seems strained, unpopular, bad timing, gather your family together to worship God. You may even take a few minutes and address the elephant in the room. Hey, I realize that none of us really want to be here now at this moment. Or I realize that we're all very busy. But express to them and emphasize to them that your job is to care for them spiritually. And, and just like you would never deny them food because you want them to be healthy, you will do all that you can to always feed them spiritually each day as well. And I personally have found that once we get started on days like these, our, our moods generally are lightened and our hearts are drawn out to, to the Lord in worship. Keep plotting, even when family worship becomes difficult. Another aspect of, of this practice that, that, um, that leads oftentimes to discouragement is, is the regular occurrence of distractions. It's helpful for you to know and prepare yourself for the inevitability that something will go wrong during family worship. Now, you heard that right. Something will go wrong. Not maybe, not possibly. It will. Your expectations will, will go unmet most of the time. Bibles will be misplaced. A guitar string will break. A diaper will need to be changed. The phone will ring. These and a myriad of other things will disrupt family worship and, and they'll shatter the vision that you had for it. That's okay. Don't let disruptions distract you from following through and leading your family. In the worship of God, you must be a stalwart of consistency, is that word, joy and optimism in family worship. Dads, husbands, you have to set the tone. If you're surly and grouchy and don't want to be there, that absolutely is contagious. But if you're full of joy and optimism and thankfulness, that too is contagious. The reason that, the reason that I'm encouraging you in this way to, to overcome your feelings, to fight back discouragement is because there is too much riding on your leadership. This is too important to give up and throw in the towel. Think of it like this. If you were walking through an airport and heading toward a flight somewhere 
And as you make your way to the gate, you notice some commotion over here on the side and you overhear a custodian quit. They just say, I'm done. I'm done with this job. And they throw down their their things and they walk out. Well, that's kind of strange, but you head on to your gate. Once you're at the gate, you're waiting to board. And as you're about to board, you see a scuffle between some of the attendants, the flight attendants there. And one of them gets really upset and says, I'm done. I quit. They walk out of the gate. Well, uh, you might not get your peanuts, but that's not that big of a deal. I'm sure things will go off. Uh, things will go on with, on the flight just fine. But let's say you're somewhere over the Atlantic Ocean. You're sitting there half asleep. And all of a sudden, over the intercom system, the pilot comes on. And he says, hey, folks, I just want to let you know that I'm going to go ahead and take my retirement early. This has gotten to be too much for me, really. I'm, I'm done. I'm done flying. Have a nice day. Cockpit door opens. Out walks the pilot. He sits down, buckles his seatbelt. Now we have a problem. God is in control. God is sovereign. But he has called you to pilot this plane. There are lives in your hands. And in reality, your role is much greater than that of a pilot. The pilot is held responsible for doing everything in his power to preserve the lives of those on that plane. Well, you're held responsible for doing everything in your power on behalf of the eternal lives of those in your care. The old catechism reminds us that Christ is our prophet, our priest, and and our king. Well, George Whitfield preached that every head of Household fulfills these same roles in the lives of those under his care. He said this, Every governor of a family ought to look upon himself as obligated to act in three capacities. As a prophet to instruct, as a priest to pray for and with, as a king to govern, direct, and provide for them. And then he goes on to say, However indifferent some governors may be about it, they may be assured that God will require a due discharge of these offices at their hands. Each family, of course, is different, and each shepherd will carry out his duties in different contexts that will mold and shape their application. But the essence of this work has never changed, and it it never will. God's word taught read and applied, joining in with prayer and singing of praises to God, make up the key elements of family worship. It can be helpful to see examples of this done, especially by those we admire. For example, Jonathan Edwards. I want to share with you what he did on a daily basis. Now, it's impossible to dispute Edwards's impact on the lives of countless Christians but certainly no more greater than that which he had on his wife and his 11 children. So this is what he did. Edwards began his day with private prayers and then family prayer by candlelight. He led his family in devotions each morning. During these devotions, he would quiz the children on questions relating to scripture. He was careful to craft his questions in accordance with their abilities. Further, he led his family in devotions along with every meal. And at the end of each day, his wife, Sarah, routinely joined him in his study for prayers. So Edward's rhythm of family worship was this, more or less. Early morning prayers, Bible reading, devotion, and catechism at meals, evening prayer with his wife. 
That seems like a good example to follow. I'm especially encouraged. It's a challenge to me by the frequency of his engagement with his family regarding spiritual matters throughout the day. So I want to give you a final call to action. If you have not yet led your family in a time of family worship, then the call to action today is simple. Do it. You are ready. Even if you don't feel like you're ready, even if you haven't ever done this before, you may have put off starting this because you have some reservations and you want to make sure that you are fully prepared before jumping in. And, and that's, that's commendable for sure. But um, if you wait until you feel ready to start, then you may never start. It's okay if it doesn't go perfectly. In fact, let me go ahead and prepare you. It's not going to go perfectly. It's going to be awkward at times. It's going to feel forced, strange feeling, and that's okay. If you're still unsure about what to do, I want to give you a simple game, a a simple game plan. As soon as you can, speak with your wife or or someone else in the household if that's appropriate, and, and let them know that you plan on leading the family in a short time of worship tonight or in the morning or whenever time works best. Then write out a simple order of worship. Here's what I suggest. Open with prayer. Sing one stanza of a familiar hymn, Amazing Grace, for example. Read Psalm 23 or maybe Psalm 1, Psalm 27, a shorter psalm, and then close with prayer. That may last five minutes, give or take. Also, go ahead and think about how the order of service will be carried out. Who will pray? Who will read? Who will lead the singing? Will you sing with an aid or just voices? Now that you have some accountability and a plan, pray. Go into your prayer closet and pour out your heart to God. Express your worries and your fears. Cast your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Repent of anxiousness and let your requests be made known to God. Ask for peace, faith, and courage. You can do this. You must do this. Now, I want to pause here and leave a few minutes for questions before for making some final remarks. I hope that everyone was able to receive um, the handouts. We were a little short tonight. If you have one, you'll notice that Uh, All four sessions are included in the packet. I I told you last week that I would bring the the others as well. And I I just thought that it would be easier to go ahead and give everybody everything. So if you already have some of the old ones, now you've got got some extras. This is uh, the collector's edition, if you will. There in your hands. So um, I hope those are helpful to you. Also, along with that, you should have gotten a bookmark. Those bookmarks were made by... Media Gratier, they, they made those a while back and gave me a bunch, so I hope those might be helpful to you. On the back of them, it gives the, the simple outline that's used in the family worship guide. It could be used as a simple reminder to remind you to do family worship and to remind you what elements are a part of that. Okay, this is your last chance to ask me the hardest question that you can come up with. Does anybody have a question or a concern about family worship that I could address now? So as far as adding, 
I didn't tell family worship. Mm-hmm. Um, what would that just be personal? Would that just be personal um, desire? Yeah. Like, okay, I have Catholic questions now. I'm yes. adding right. uh, another song or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. The question is, what about adding? What elements, how do we decide what elements um, that we might would add to family worship? Uh, Stick with the basic ordinary means of grace prescribed by the scriptures. So read, pray, sing. Read the scriptures, pray the scriptures, sing the scriptures. Um, As far as adding other elements, I added catechism questions, which um, obviously is saturated with scripture. And then... uh, Portions from the 1689 Confession. The reason that I added those, and initially I put that together for my family, my desire was to, to give my family a theological undergirding. I wanted them to grow in their understanding of basic systematic theology. I wanted them to be clear on those things. So that's why I added those. Um, a, a family, especially a head of a household, can consider his own context and what his family needs and um, possibly add some other elements. My only caution would be to make sure that it is closely related to one of those, those three basic ordinary means of grace. Read, pray, and sing. Thank you. It's a good question. Yes, sir. What happens when you take this on the road, you're going to go on vacation? Yeah. What the hospital environment is not accepted these things. Yeah. I don't know. You don't apologize your family really comfortable in sure. that environment. Sure. So the question is, what, what do you do if you're uh, maybe visiting another family and that other family is hostile toward Christianity or uncomfortable with that? Yeah, so uh, that takes some, some prudence and some wisdom. You, you need to think about um, your history with that family and their per- per- percept- perception of it. I, I would not use... Uh, a club here and just say family worship every time, every day, no matter what. You use wisdom there. Um, family worship is a wonderful way to share the gospel with people and allow people to see what it is to know and fear and love the Lord. So um, I'd say at any time you can, definitely do it. Um, but you might adjust it a little bit. You might do it in a way that um, they would feel a bit more welcome to be a part of it. Or if it's a very hostile environment, you don't feel like you can do the full, a full sort of family worship. You might do something um, smaller, gather the family together in a side room for a time of prayer or something along those lines. Thank you. That's a good question. Someone else have a question? Let me address one um, issue that was brought up to me. Um, I addressed young children last time. Uh, what about teenagers? One of the challenges that I've, uh, I haven't personally confronted, but folks have talked to me about, is when you start family worship and you already have kids that are in the teenage years. So you're introdu- introducing something totally new to them, and they might, they might be hostile towards it. They might be uncomfortable with it. They might not want to participate in it. So what do we do? Do we require them to be a part of that or should we back off how do we handle that situation Um, my counsel is this you treat family worship the same way that you treat church in terms of attendance in terms of being there so um, for a a teenager who doesn't want to be a part i would say um, to that teenager 
I understand you might not desire, but this is a family activity, and I, I do require you to be a part of this. Now, don't make them sing a special during family worship. Don't force them to do something that's totally against their will in, in family worship that's going to make it more awkward and difficult for them. Allow them to be simply silent attenders there till the Lord softens their heart and maybe they get used to it. But I would not say, it's fine, you don't have to be here, go to your room as the rest of the family does family worship. I would caution against that approach. Yes, sir? Something that uh, I haven't experienced, but I do have a question about. So with believing spouses that don't want to do family worship like, at one point, mm-hmm. so it's a consistency, but they just don't feel like going. Yeah. Like how, how do you handle that? And you said the spouse is a believer? Yeah. Yeah, a believing spouse who doesn't doesn't want to do it. Do you mean one time or just doesn't want to ever, generally does not want to no, do no, it? like maybe not feel like doing it that day or sure. maybe a couple different times. Oh, yeah. Um, grace, grace, and more grace. Be careful. Don't turn family worship into a law. Don't become a, a tyrant in your home. Um, be creative, be flexible. Uh, for example, a while back, uh, Amanda was actually sick and um, she was in bed. So what we decided to do that evening is, and often, if, if that, generally what we do is we would have it without her because she's not well at all. If one of the children is really sick. But we just moved family worship into the bedroom. Um, I'm not sure how much she heard or was a part, but we just sat around the bed and we did family worship there. Um, if a spouse is, um, there's some issue going on one day and they just, they just say, I, I don't know, you know, that, that would be a time of um, not condemnation, not forcing them to do it, but understanding what's going on and help your spouse deal with whatever issues going on in their heart. Now, if a spouse is in general opposed to it and they claim to be a believer, that's another issue um, that would probably come to uh, probably need to come to the attention, attention of the elders at that point to, to seek some, some counsel on what to do in a situation like that. Because that, that would be a problem. Okay, last chance. Last chance to stump me. So far I've answered all the questions. I pray that God has used his word to convince your mind, uh, to move your heart, to enable your hands Now it's time to get to work. Take courage and be strong in the Lord. And I want to conclude by calling your attention not to some great figure in church history, but to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Look to Christ as your example and inspiration. Walk in his steps. As he has shepherded you, shepherd your flock. Thomas Manton wrote this. He said, we must look upon Jesus as a father carrying all his children on his back or lapped up in his garment through a deep river through which they must pass. And as it were, saying to them, fear not, I will set you safely on land. Look upon Christ waiting with all his children through the floods of death and hell and saying, Fear not, worm Jacob. Fear not, poor souls. I will get you safely across. You are not the savior of your family's souls. 
but you are the under shepherd charged with caring for their souls by leading them to the good shepherd, Christ. Take up your lambs upon your back and carry them through the deep river. Say to them, fear not. Let us look to Christ together. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you humbly. We are needy people, O oh God. And we come to you because you are the one who has met our needs from before we can remember. You've you created us and you have sustained us. You've called us out of our sin. You've called us from death to life. And Lord, you've, you've called us to this journey, this pilgrimage, and you've put us, put other people around us that we live with day in and day out, that we, that we eat meals with and that we, that we care for when they're sick or our families. Lord, help us to see the great privilege it is to minister to them. Help us, O oh Lord, to build one another up in the faith. I pray that this congregation will be known for singing praises to you, praying fervent prayers, and reading large portions of your word in their homes. Lord, that you could be going by any of these members' households on any given day, and it wouldn't be surprising at all to find them worshiping you. Oh, Lord, and there's nothing more fitting, more right that we could do than to turn our hearts toward you and worship. We fear you, God. We love you. You are worthy of worship. Lord, I pray that you will continue to use these simple, humble teaching sessions, Lord, in the hearts of my brothers and sisters and in my own heart, Lord, to spur us on to this good work. Lord, we love you and we thank you. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.